see, and here we are. We're skipping it again already. Um, I forgot. So, hey, everybody. My name's Mitchell Crute. Um, a high school educator, <laughs> veteran of the Army for six years, um, part-time, or I should say seasonal carpenter. I help frame houses. Um, I've got two degrees in history. Um, I call myself an armchair psychologist. Um, and the whole point of starting these podcasts is a therapeutic content creation along with um, a need for intellectual stimulation. Mm -hmm. And my name is Christy Bohan. I have two psychology degrees, and right now I'm a behavior consultant out in Oregon. Um, so I work with a lot of people with disabilities and finding ways to make their current life routine a little bit easier for them and a little bit less stressful. Um, so that's how I spend my days. And... I love thinking about this kind of stuff. I, it's like compulsive. Don't really have a choice, so we might as well talk about it. Yeah, um, there, there is that. It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. You know. Well, then let's talk about it. Um, so I noticed in our preparation that you started back in middle ages right medieval villages how big are social circles or how let me phrase this right how big should our social circles really be do we want to start middle ages do we want to go back to the hunter-gatherers try an evolutionary psychologist evolutionary psycho psychological path it's a mouthful right there um or do we That's just want to want to pick and choose i like starting back in history because it gives you some context for like a little bit that we haven't changed at all. I think some people, you know, if you took the brain of a medieval peasant and the brain of someone today, the exact same, we have the exact same capacities and it feels like it's a completely different time. And, you know, evolution has not occurred since then. So we still are these people with different tools. So it can be helpful to see like, because a lot of people ask what would happen if the internet went out and, you know, like, oh, children would all suffer. Like, no, they'd be fine. They'd be as fine as the medieval peasants were without their internet. Yeah, I, um, I to remind myself and my students all the time that the thing that humanity has going for it is we are incredibly flexible and resilient. Like, like you know, it, yeah. if every every species that evolves evolves with that specific trait. Right. Think of like lions and tigers with their their claws and their hunting, pouncing instincts. Right. They hyper focus on that particular skill. And that's their their ticket to continued evolutionary success. Human beings, we don't have any one of the our our pointed skill that has been honed through the evolutionary process is generalism. Right. That's that's why human beings as a species can be found in every single biome on the planet. Yeah. Making tools, making clothes, making stuff work. As we have the as... ability to manipulate our environment a lot more yeah. than our animal friends. Um, but, yeah. um, there was something, I forget how long ago I, I heard or read about it, but some idea that, you know, around like the classical Greece time, 
um, was when human beings as a species started to evolve the ability to see blue. Right, as far as like like the, the color spectrum, the, the visible light spectrum, blue is arguably one of the newest because if you go back and you read like history, if you're a lonely human, you die. Uh, if you are with a group of people, you're safe. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, we, we can see this medically with like newborns, right? If they don't get enough skin to skin contact within like the first three days, even if they're properly nourished, they die, right? They, yeah. they, they don't get the proper um, dopamine and serotonin releases to trigger all of the things, the processes that need to need to happen, you know? Um, but then also, too, I do. The loneliness and the like social issues is one of the biggest, like with the population that I work with the most, like disabled adults, it is pervasive and it is pretty severe in some cases, like the extra stress and especially with COVID, like I got to talk people off the ledge constantly of like, you'll make friends. It's going to be okay. We're going to try X, Y, and Z. And yeah, it's, it's a thing for that population but it's thing for everybody, like being part of a group. Yeah, is, and uh, is it goes pretty high on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Well, it, oh yeah, yeah. It's um, I want to say step three or four, something like that. You have your physiological needs, and then you have um, what is it, familial needs, and then that expands out to those social needs. Um. So, I mean, it's, I think if we're going to place definitions on things and, like, bound our conversation, one place that it should not be controversial is that we do need groups. They are fundamentally and psychologically necessary for stable and healthy people, right? And if, just like you alluded to, if our group is too small, um, among other things, the anxiety of trying to manage all of that uncertainty singularly by yourself is crippling yeah it helps to have other people i think even if you were the only one doing the work but there was someone else there someone that you were doing it for like how many times have you or at least me so many times i have done like 30 minutes of and it's the most productive 30 minutes of my life and it's because someone's coming over and now all of a sudden this social pressure has like unlocked something in my brain and now I'm like all of this laundry can go away I've been walking past this hat on the floor for three days I'm gonna notice it and pick it up and you know something happens there when you're aware that well if I don't do this other people will judge me and it can be pretty healthy for me because I don't know if I would do like keep as clean a household or cook or eat the right things, the right things if I didn't feel the pressure to from a bad Well, and, and th that's something I, I think about a lot too. Um, stress in and of itself isn't necessarily unhealthy. Right. That's what, yeah. that's what physical exercise is. It's stress. It's micro trauma to your muscles. So they strengthen. So you do the same thing next time and you can do it more easily. 
same thing that healthy stress can push us to better ourselves and to accomplish things that we might struggle to motivate ourselves to do on our own. But then also too, you know, keeping this within the in-group, out-group conversation, we scale up too high and that, um, that overwhelming stress, be it performance anxiety, be it feelings of inadequacy, because you just simply don't have the time to have and foster healthy friendships with 2,000 individuals on a monthly basis type thing. You know, so th there, there is a lower limit to social group size, right? What our social circle should be. If it's too few, or you get a little wacky because you're not getting the right, the right stimulation. And if it's too large, too, it, it's, you think of it as, as being constantly overstimulated. Yes. I think one of, like, when I played, like, volleyball more competitively, written rule that like the anger like anger and some of those more negative emotions can be for your your brain is here's a bunch of chemicals and now suddenly you can lift 10 more pounds and you have this adrenaline and you're pissed and you play so much better if you're able to accept like well that was terrible just hit a really bad ball now i'm pissed about it now i'm gonna actually absolutely cream this next one and it always felt like a little gift it's from your body like here here's some extra strength here's some extra intensity and it can be extremely healthy and that's that competitive edge that like killer edge like in football and sports and um it's something that we i think as a society would say this is an emotion we avoid. This is an emotion we seek. But they're all very useful and they're all there for a reason. And um, for me, yeah, I came to, uh, to love those little moments where your face gets red and you're just ready to just bite and go. Um, it's very cathartic. So. Well, and it. I guess my point would be, even if having a social circle is stressful, use, it doesn't matter if it's negative, because uh, you can use whatever's happening to your advantage. That's really, that's like a kind of psychopathic way to put it. But <laughs> um, if you have a fight with your friend and then you go and get that energy out in some productive way, then thing is truly broken you're doing all right yeah but there's still um there's still an upper limit now where that limit is and what some of the byproducts of teetering towards that boundary i don't know um i do think that right because i mean uh, otherwise why why, why do most people have some instinctual avoidance of crowds. 
Right. We, we, we do have that innate built in. There's too many people. There's too much uncertainty. There's mm -hmm. too much threat, right? Because in the past, those of our collective ancestors that didn't respond to the potential of threat in groups were killed. And those that did, even if the threat wasn't real, right, they tended to survive more. So like evolutionarily, it would make sense that we have that proclivity to avoid crowds. But we can't avoid crowds. Right. So where's where's that ideal healthy balance point? Right. As Aristotle would say, where's that golden mean in between those two extremes? Yeah, I do think it's different. I'm imagining a crowd where everyone is walking in crisscrosses and it's very busy and everyone has a different destination. But that would be more stressful than the exact same amount of people walking in the same direction. You know what I mean? Like, so well, and, and you feel like this group, we're all doing the same thing. You would have a different sort of innate response than if it was pure chaos. Well, and then that that's a really interesting metaphor and a nice segue back to um, in-group, out-group preference. Because the way I've been thinking about it the past couple of weeks is that we have... Right, we, we just identified and agreed that we fundamentally and psychologically need an in-group. However defined, right, yeah. that, that's, that's, that's an aside. Um, we do fundamentally need an in-group because I think of that very reason, right? In being part of an in-group gives us a, for, allow me to, to um, play with this analogy for a minute of like, an RPG game or D&D or something like that. An in-group gives us a pre-made character sheet that would that we get we get to test out, right? Um, I was watching a I was watching a podcast with Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris a couple weeks ago, um, and they were talking about a patient that had bilateral hippocampal damage, to where. Mm -hmm. The, the result was every time he experienced something, um, physiologically, it was like he was experiencing it for the first time. He, had, he was aware of that, right? But it would, could you imagine how crippling that would be if every time your alarm went off in the morning, your initial response was, this has never happened before, and you have to figure out what to do next? Right. Every time you go to, to, to go grocery shopping, you have to figure out like what the local store is and how that operates. Right. That that in group gives us that starting point, I think. Yeah, that is a good analogy because you don't have to like reinvent the I learned to speak English. I could have come up with my own language as a wee lass mm -hmm. acquiring language, but I learned the one that was spoken around me which is if a language wasn't spoken around me you wouldn't learn it but um it's very useful acquiring english because i know a lot of people who speak it and like that's something very fundamental but way to hair color lip fillers getting your eyelashes done like all of those uh you know this is women do this is something 20 something women do like oh okay i'll do it too and not really have to think about if you actually like it or 
not have to have a reflection about it every time. Well, and I think you bring up a good point there because that's where things really get interesting. So if in-groups are a heuristic, right, a, a way to lower the resolution of what we have to deal with with our sensory input, so that way we at least have... Um, it takes the range of possible responses, which is infinite, and binds it so way, that way we can at least manage and make a um, predictively accurate response. All right. If in-groups are a heuristic, then what you're just describing there, those social signals, getting your eyelashes or your hair done, um, men with, you know, looking put together, whatever, whatever social signals you want to look at, um, those are broadcasting to the world which heuristic we're using, right? It's, 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 it's like a, a meta heuristic, right? So I could, um, that's why you could go to some place like Germany or something like that. And if you sit back and you're tuning, you people watch, you don't even have to, like an American could be dressed in German clothing and you can still pick them out, right? Because they, mm -hmm. they, we're, we're not nuanced in all of those we're not nuanced in the heuristic of figuring out which heuristic to use in that situation. Right. It is the like social psychology research I've read about it is just that it's faster. It saves time and it's efficient to be able to quickly, like this person is wearing a blue shirt in Dallas. They probably like football. Um, yeah. And you don't have to make that deduction every time you just know a football fan i can say about them cowboys and mm -hmm. and you're done and it took less than a second you didn't have to think about it and you're able to have a positive interaction with this guy yeah it it's it's like an algorithm for taking the infinite amount of sensory inputs right and weeding the you know picking out the wheat from the chaff and then taking the infinite amount of sensory or or you know, behavioral outputs to that sensory input, separating the wheat from the chaff, right? Because, so, I mean, fundamentally, that's what the brain is. It's a modeling engine. It takes, that, that's what's what memory is. It compiles all that information, and then it runs these models to see which one's going to be the most accurate response for those sensory inputs. But we have time restraints because if someone throws a spear at you and you don't react fast enough, you die, right? And that's where that heuristic kicks in. That's why, you know, if we're sitting here talking and my son walks in and shoots a Nerf dart at me, I don't even have to see it. I just catch a blur in my peripheral vision and my instinct is to duck because more often than not, that's an accurate response low cost, high payoff, regardless of whether it's an actual threat or not. Yeah. In my work, I work with people with behavioral issues. So a lot of aggression, a lot of yelling, throwing things, using every, anything as a weapon. And it has kind of uh, changed the way I react, um, especially here in uh, Portland. There's a lot of homeless people and it's perfectly legal to stand on the street and scream at the top of your lungs. Nothing wrong with that. They can do whatever they want, but it makes you immediately. Now what I do is I go, Oh God, someone's yelling. Oh, it's just a homeless dude. And then I can continue on with my day. And that might not be, I don't know. Like that's just conditioned. It's not like, like the evolutionary response is to tense up when you hear someone yell, but 
Um, now what I do is I make sure it's I make sure it's a homeless person doing it because if it wasn't, I would be a lot more uh, alarmed. Like, what's happening? What's going on? Um, so I bring that up just to you know, reflect on. I don't think. Wish I knew what the right way to react was. When you see someone, you sense a threat, and you have to decide: like, should I go? Should I turn around and just go home? Is this something bad I'm walking into? And being able to make that judgment call just based on what you see, basically. Well, right. and that's beautiful because, um, right? That's why human beings, more than any other animal, has we've evolved a white around our pupils it it displays directionality and intentionality so the first thing that you do if you're walking if you're walking on the sidewalk and you're looking at your phone and you hear someone screaming across the street you look at them and then you look at what they're looking at mm -hmm. right because if it's you know if you don't look to verify what they're looking at it could be anything from a delusion to a legitimate alien invasion right but it's 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 yeah. our it's our instinct to want to know like because they're going to be attending to whatever it is um that's evoking a response f like that from them so it's gonna it's instinctual for us to go and try and pay attention to attend to that same source right and i'm also kind of stuck on why you know what am i looking for when i'm looking i don't have like a checklist in my mind um but once i see who's doing it something in my body just goes oh okay you're good keep going where and i'm not conscious of whatever decision my brain is making or that's sort of taking me from that level of oh my god what's about to happen to oh don't worry about it keep going on sis and there's something <laughs> there and we all have it we've all felt that um, it's like the feeling when you like miss the bottom step of the stairs and your body's like, ah, okay, keep going. You're fine. <laughs> so it's like that, but socially trying to figure out what people are going to do. What about domestication of animals? That was an interesting, I know to whatever audience we might have, if we even have enough to be called an audience that might seem way out of left field, but that's on, that's on our notes for our, our prep page. Um, domestication of animals as affecting our social groups. Let's start here. Why did that idea pop in your head? Uh, again, pandemic, when we were all stuck in our houses and seeing others was dangerous allegedly um you know that was our reaction at the beginning of the pandemic whether it was right or wrong was stay away from all people and every shelter ran out of dogs because my thought is our social circles were limited we weren't seeing people at work uh, we weren't seeing people at school we weren't seeing people at the grocery store and we did what our ancestors did when they were lonely and started making friends with anything that walked or moved. Because um, we do do that. Like Some people are very attached to their houseplants, and they give them names, and they talk to them. And I think it is a healthy way to balance out if your social circle is too small, 
Um, and because some animals were domesticated strictly for companionship, like not horses or cows. Those were domesticated for food and labor. But dogs and cats were probably just because we thought they were cool. And well, that's I, how it started. And it, 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 doing it. it might have changed, but I think um, last I heard or saw about it was... Um, and I'm very well could be mistaken about this, so nobody take this as well. Mitchell said, so it must be true. Um, I think the consensus was cats kind of domesticated themselves, right? I've heard that too. Yeah, which is awesome. Um, yeah, it's sweet. Um, and then the dogs, it makes it's sense, but but theory. I mean they're they're also yeah. we they're also working too. Because um, if you think about it, like the modern pet dog wasn't an option in hunter gatherer days. You had big wolf or small wolf, you know. Um, but I, I, I want to kind of bring up these two things that I put down for that. Um, that I think we can split the domestication of animals as affecting our social circles. We can we can look at that in two different categories. The first category, like you brought up farmyard animals, um, horses, oxen, things like that. Through our need to be disproportionately efficient, right? We had to do more, um, more work with less bodies. So things that would take 10 people to do could take two dudes and an oxen, right? So we could, we could either sustain the smaller social circles and family groups better, or, right, we could outproduce and start having larger family groups. Um, the second category that I thought of was exactly what you're talking about as a replacement for um, stimulation from our social groups, like replacement people. And I think that touches on something really interesting. And I kind of want to lead this into another question that you brought up in our planning document was um, wonder if that's how deities started forming right because old hunter-gatherer days we we do we name our house plants we name our cars we ascribe human-like attributes to inhuman things right we anthropomorphize stuff we seem to have an instinct or a proclivity and i wonder if that's it right that anthropomorphization um acts as that that buffer zone Right, so if our social circle's too small, we can bring in some of this and we can get some of that. Um, I don't know if mom ever told you, but grandma used to joke all the time um, when mom and dad were trying to figure out whether they wanted to have Drew or not. Um, grandma used to joke all the time that three kids is too few and four is too many, so you get three and a dog. Right, because uh, a dog's like a half a kid. Um, right. So I, I think I think that might be I don't know if it's a limiting principle or just that that buffer zone between um, having too small of a social circle and then like being able to get that larger social social circle stimulation without the threat thereof too. Right. It does. I never thought of it the way when you were talking about horses pulling like a wagon as a mm -hmm. way to reduce the amount of labor that you needed. Um, because 
that does perfect sense. I can do this myself. I don't have to rely on someone else. I have this tool, which I think, you know, humans made spears, humans made horses work for them. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a tool making urge. And horses are extremely, I don't have any personal experience with this, but I've heard they're extremely great companions and they have, uh, our domestication of horses has made them more companionable probably than when they started. So, um, well, and also too, you know, they serve two roles. They serve both roles as Mm -hmm. a tool and as a companion. Well, and you dial the historical clock back far enough and that would fit too with just the fact that at some point there just wasn't enough people you know you need 30 people to plow a field you've only seen 10 people in your entire life (laughs) like you know we go far back far back far enough to hunter-gatherer days and before that to early humans you know hobo habilis um australopithecus africanus homo erectus all of those leading up to us um and it really is anybody's guess on if these family groups that numbered around 30 to 50 ever ran into any other major family groups. And if they did, it was always just strictly confrontational. You know, it, it, it wasn't consolidating. That's not the right term. It, it means what I want to put there, but it's not the right word I want to use. But I'm going to let it slide. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. Oh, I was going to add about those days. Like there was, I think it was an article, um, but it might've just been a documentary, but there was a pretty well-preserved skeleton that they found from like frozen in the ice. And this was a really kind of pivotal change the way that anthropologists kind of thought about early humans because this skeleton had um a skull abnormality which they implied he was probably like intellectually or developmentally disabled in some way he had um a healed femur fracture Mm -hmm. which means they had this person who was probably not able to do a lot of work around like he would have needed some help, some oversight, caring for him more than he was caring for them. So it was less of a give and take and more of just a give. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've heard, that, heard he that story survived. too. Yeah. That, um, um, it was, it was so, an anthropologist that, that made the claim that she thought that that's where, where culture began. Right when these family groups were were able to and chose to take care of people that couldn't contribute simply for the fact that they were part of the group. Right. So this guy probably didn't pull his weight like you would expect. Like you know, there's a social contract yeah. you're expected to contribute. <laughs> Literally and ways, metaphorically and pulling didn't. his weight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and he was still able to live to like old age then like 55 I thought um and he died peacefully of old age and was buried which says a lot um but yeah and I mean again our brains haven't changed at all so we would do the same things if in the same situation in that same environment but it is nice to know that 
I guess just reiterating, it's nice to know that we've been doing that. We've been taking care of people, mm -hmm. even if it's not the most efficient, you know, like capitalist, die hard, like you're homeless. Sorry about it. Get good. Get a job. <laughs> um, we've been looking out for others for a long time. Well, yeah. It makes and, me and... feel like, okay, humans are all right. <laughs> well, and the... Not to devalue it at all, because it is a remarkable feat, and human agency, I think, is a real thing. The whole free will argument is something we won't get into, but we, 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 can, we can differentiate between free will as an abstract concept and then agency as a behavioral, right? I can choose my behaviors to some limited degree. Um, but we do, have, we do have that evolutionary drive or we have a drive given to us by the evolutionary process to care for one another. Because just like you said at the beginning of this podcast, we, you know, it, it, this isn't a one-person job. Nobody gets through life by themselves. We're, we're nested in these support structures that are absolutely fundamentally necessary for continued survival. Um, That's something that came up recently for me, thinking about the classification of this person is a genius. Mozart was a genius. Steve Jobs was a genius. Them is probably not a good reflection of what actually happened when they created this genius product, um, like a symphony that is like the most beautiful thing ever. Like he's a genius. He did it all by himself with no help. What a guy. But mm -hmm. I don't think that's a good of what actually happened and how that thing got made. They they might have that natural foundation, but that natural foundation was built upon by the nurturing of the environment that they were in. Whether it was, yeah. a, you know, in the case of like, you know, those like take Tiger Woods, for instance, his nurturing environment that gave him greatness was traumatizing to him. But it, you know, the, yeah. the, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't negate the fact that it, it's it's both. Right, you have to have this proclivity and inclination towards whatever skill, but then you also have to have that drive, either good intention or bad intentioned, that pushes you there. Um, I was going to ask yeah. you something. How do you think? Okay one question and then one point um let's handle the question first and then let me make my point and then I'd, I'd like to get your comments to see how you feel or any any critique that you you have for my point um and then we can do any you know if we want to wrap it up we can um because we're going on a little over an hour now um so question about the social circles how do you think revolutionary technology like social media is affecting both our real world social circles versus what we have been um, evolutionarily pushed towards and if there are those differences what some of those consequences might be right how might that be eliciting different and unusual behaviors in people and what are the what are the long-term multi-generational effects of that That's a great question with a lot of very smart people doing very good research on. So my thought is 
there is an expectation that if this thing comes across your feed, your brain makes a judgment, should I care about this or should I not? And if it comes across enough times, that repetition, you realize I should care about this. I'm seeing it a lot. And it is not innately unhealthy, I think, to have relationships online and to only interact with people online, or not only. I think if the only time you interact with a specific person is online, that that's not innately unhealthy. And I mean, have did you get into Wordle? No, I've dodged that bullet. That <laughs> I'm, I'm like I'm like I'm, I'm like Neo from the Matrix over here, dodging all of these pop culture trends because I just don't have the time to get. I don't have the time to do what yeah. I'm doing already, let alone get sucked into anything new. I haven't done today's Wordle yet, but I usually do it first thing in the morning, and then I send it to the people that I talk with Wordle about. So we have a similar interest in this strictly online thing. And I have used that in my real life when I'm seeing people. Did you play Wordle? Did you play Wordle? How'd you do today? And it's not, um, I don't know. I do think you have to I guess my point is, if you're doing it online, you should be doing it offline as well. And if there's something that you only do on Twitter, you only talk about on Twitter, it's probably going to be unhealthy for you because I don't know why. I just feel like it will be unhealthy for you. Like if you only talk about Kanye West on Twitter and you never talk about Kanye West in real life, that would make me think something has gone wrong here. Why are you doing this? Like you're going out of your way to do specific things online. And I guess it's not a, like, it doesn't feel like a whole healthy way to go about things. And I don't have reason to why I think that. It's just, if you can't take it into your real life, you should probably forget about it online. I wonder if that's, I'm certain echo chamber factors in there somehow. To what degree, I don't know. Um, but but I, I know it, it, it is. Um, we have a proclivity for echo chambers, and they have a proclivity for warping us. But I think that last point that you made about pra practicality or pragmatism, I, I'm, I'm far from a utilitarian, but... If it doesn't translate to the real world, then the behaviors that you're adopting and the habits that you're forming and the ideas that you're having don't relate to the real world. And if they don't relate to the real world, then by definition, they are distracting and or distorting the way that you operate in the real world because you're not operating with the real world at face value. You're operating with a corrupted schematization of the real world. Yeah. This is, I mean, it's got to cause some cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that is unhealthy. It's better to 
be all on the same page than having a lot of cognitive dissonance. Like everyone thought I had a great weekend because I posted a picture while I was out to brunch. But as soon as I did that, I got in a car wreck, garbage bag broke on my floor, my dog died, and you know, it's uh that happens to a lot of people where yeah. social media is completely different from day to day. And then they have that additional cognitive load of trying to balance and navigate the two thems. Yeah. You know, like keeping I, a secret. Yeah, I I could see how if if that becomes pathologized, how any crossover between the two would be at best disrupting, at worst crippling. Mm -hmm. You know, cataclysmic even depending yeah. on the person. You know, and I wonder because I mean, is it, I'm in no way, shape, or form qualified enough to discuss these things. So so using your your background correct me if i'm wrong but wouldn't that be what makes like schizophrenia and schizoid personality disorder so crippling right be, because there there are these separate entities just to, to use a placeholder word these separate personalities and where they do kind of feed in or cross over it's so distorting that the person is just like cognitively crippled Am, am I yeah. am I am I framing that accurately? I think so. Um, it I don't know because I've never like experienced it. It it's one of those things like when I talk to people with delusions because that comes up in my career a lot as well. I wish I could pull from something that I've experienced in order to like kind of bridge that gap and empathize with them. And I cannot, I have no idea what it would be like. Um, but I don't know for sure if that's the right way to put it for them, because when you have a delusion or a hallucination, it comes across as real and it can take a little bit and you can sort of train up some tricks to figuring out pretty quickly if it's real or not. But like right now, if I were to get a knock on my door, I know that that is real. I just heard a real knock. And if you have schizophrenia, you hear a knock on your door. You, I mean, you just assume it's real. Someone's there. They open the door and they let them in and they talk with them. And then 30 minutes later, they're like, uh oh, I've been hallucinating. And well, and, and then that's that's that where that breakdown comes from. Yeah. Right. Because because then that yeah, it can it, be stressful, that inability to determine what is a delusion and what isn't. Um, yeah, I can see that. Speaking of, um, I I asked William the other day. Um, we just got done eating dinner. William, how do you know you're not dreaming right now? You know, just just a little bit of psychological yep. trauma for an eight year old, right? Um, but but no, he he sat he sat down and he thought about it, and and he actually gave me a really solid answer for an eight year old. He said something to the effect of, um, "Because I know 
when I do something that something will happen. I, I forget what example he gave, but you know, when I, because I know when I turn the TV on, it's going to turn on or when I drop the remote, it's going to hit the floor or whatever. And so I asked him, you know, well, how do you know? And that paused him for a little bit. Um, that whole epistemological piece. But then that got me and him into a conversation of, um, I'm going to phrase this the wrong way because I always forget it. Um, it's either the convergence of truth hypothesis or the congruence of truth hypothesis, right? So him and I, we could go out into my front yard at different times and I could go out to the tree in our front yard and I can describe it as accurately as I can and come back inside and then send him out and he can describe it as accurately as he can. And for the most part, our dis descriptions are going to overlap, right? Mm -hmm. Because because there there is that... There is that physical reality, that objective reality that we're bumping up against to some degree. Um, we, we're going to have our subject, right? He might look at the leaves more than, uh, than I'll look at the bark, but we're still describing the same organism, the same cellular structure, the same atomic structure, right? The same density of mass, all of that's the same. Um, I, I, um, I thought a lot too about like the last year or so, and I talked with some of my students about it last year, how one of the, the the thought exercises I came up with to to validate that to some degree that there, there is an objective reality, right? I can place a red apple on a table in the middle of a room with like three people, um, you, me, and, and someone else. You and I, we see color just fine. The someone else is, is red, green, colorblind. And so the apple is gray to them, right? For our subjective experiences, Right, you and I are having a fundamentally different experience than that person. We're seeing the color he's not or she's not, who you know, whoever it is. Um, but that's not to say that the light isn't being re absorbed and refracted off of that apple in a specific and measurable way, whether you can see it physically or subjectively or not. Right, it's still objectively mm -hmm. measurable. Um, yeah, the lights are off, it's still red. Yeah. Um, Nisi, now we're getting to a metaphysical question of, you know, is it, if, is it really, <laughs> you know, if there's, if there's no light to be reflected off of something, then there's no way to measure either visually or with, with metrics or any other device, like what color it would be. Um, so therefore is color real or not? Um, but, but that can, that can be one for the later discussions. Um, last thing. Presumably, last thing I wanted to bug you about is this point of, I wanted to go back to the social circles, and um, let me lay out how I've been thinking about and visualizing it the past couple days, and then you tell me what you think. Um, so, there's a, a psychiatrist from the UK, his name's uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, He's, and I'm pretty sure I've talked with you about about him. He's the one that, that looks at how the two different brain hemispheres work against each other and collaboratively to give us our, our, the totality of our conception of the world. And by that, I mean, one hemisphere focuses on immediate practicalities, right? I need to eat. Something gets mm -hmm. thrown at me and I need to respond with accuracy. Um, I'm trying to hunt and I need to go accurately kill something without getting injured myself in the process because we're in hunter-gatherer days, anything along those lines. Um, while the other hemisphere is focused on 
the whole puzzle rather than just one of the pieces, right? So while, yay, Portland, um, while um, one hemisphere might be focused on who am I right now? What do I need? Do I need to sleep? Do I need to eat? Do I need to fight something? Whatever. The other half is focused on who am I next year? Am I establishing a, a value system that I can pass on multi-generationally that's going to be successful, right? What does it mean to be alive? All of these deep philosophical questions. Um, I wonder how, how much that overlays with our need for groups. Because we do have a immediate identity, right? Um, the local, the immediate needs, that, that really general heuristic that we use. But like, so I'm not just the head of household. I'm not just an individual, right? I'm also a citizen of Rowan County. I'm a citizen of North Carolina. Um, I'm nested in our family tree that we've traced back to like the 1600s in Scotland, you know, um, I'm all of those things at once. I'm part of the human race, whatever that means, right? You kind of picking up the pictures that, that I'm painting a little bit, right? That how we, through our hemispheric division in the brain, we conceptualize our, what it means to be an in-group at two different layers of resolution at the same time. Yeah. Did that make any sense it's at a all? a lot to think about. <laughs> I think so. So so I'm going to do some reflective listening here. And so your idea is that we have basic needs that a group does for us. And then in our free time, we can think about how cool it would be if our group was like utopia and that's that's what i took away from what you said like the systems of government and laws and order and i'll drive on the right side of the road is an experiment that we kind of get the privilege of partaking in um because that bigger picture brain uh, is able to act on a little bit of that. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to imply that our smaller groups help us facilitate the attending to of immediate small-scale needs. I was more of trying to allude to we can use the same map orientation and lay it over this phenomena as well. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I think that is totally, I mean, that helps explain why we've gone so crazy with our cities and I, I use the word crazy, but I mean like intense and curated with our cities and apartment complexes and roads and airlines and we've set up this whole web for us to um when we didn't have to because just for living we would have been fine if we never moved past 150 medieval 
people in one village and yeah. they never move. And, and I think it might be... We didn't have to do all this, but we did. No, but we are self-aware enough creatures and... Um, This is a different conversation for a different time, but I'm going to lay a little bit of context just so that what I'm going to say is going to make sense. Um, many of the modern cognitive scientists or scientists of consciousness, like um, John Verveke at the University of Toronto, um, they the model for consciousness right now is the 4E model. Right, Consciousness is embodied, embedded, extended, and enacted. Right, If it, if it hits those four requirements or those four metrics um then you know then then that's I, I hate to use the term authentic consciousness and I'm, I'm probably doing them a major injustice by framing it the wrong way um but like that's that's what separates human consciousness from like ai right ai is not mm -hmm. self -re and that that's the, that self-reflective piece right it might be self-correcting but it's not projecting itself into the future it doesn't have that that forward-looking self-reflection that extended piece of consciousness recognizing that i'm not just a person that has an extended time span right i'm not a particular set of atoms in a particular point in time uh, you know a particular point in in space i am that but only for a moment i'm also that across you know at least 34 years now, you know, hopefully maybe pushing 80 or 90 when all is said and done. Um, but then, you know, not, not just that too. scale it up one more, one more layer of resolution that I'm not just, I'm not just an 80 year old collection of experiences and atoms and material and consciousness or soul or whatever that is. Um, I'm also taking all of all of that from our collective past that's been handed that we've inherited, embodying that, and then projecting that forward too by teaching my kids certain mannerisms and behaviors that they're going to teach their kids that they're going to teach their kids, right? It's like it's like the the Russian nesting dolls. So I I am the smallest one in the middle right now, but I'm also me over my lifetime which is nested in feeding off of and feeding into the next cycles, the next eras, the next epics, and then, you know, the human story. Mm -hmm. I do like that. And I think consciousness would be a great topic for us to get into because in, well, I also like the ones that can tie back to kind of life today, which consciousness is a little bit more, step away it's 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 a, it's a little abstract <laughs> we, we, yeah. we 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 have to take and, the uh, we have to take the floaties off so we can really dive down in order to get to that topic yeah it would be a, a, a trial um and there's some very i i'm gonna call them entertaining studies done by behavior analysts because like in an effort to make cognitive psychology which in psychology today cognitive psychology is like the winner most psychologists are cognitive psychologists mm -hmm. i have been trained in behavior analysis so 
there's two wings. And I, I, it is I, I prefer the cognitive the, because I get to play with the conceptual structures like Piaget and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, in my opinion, the conflict has only added to the conversation. Like, they're not tearing each other down. When a analyst criticizes a cognitive psychologist, we move forward as a science. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it's entertaining. There's some great stuff there. So we would have to dive into uh, the particular study I'm thinking of is when they trained a pigeon to show um, a novel behavior using a tool that they didn't train um and it was able to do it and the reaction it had was it looked at it and it kind of peeked its head around and it figured it out and then it did it and it looked like this pigeon had an insight to this is how i'm going to use this tool which we attribute insight as a quality that only humans and some higher primates can have yeah and they trained a pigeon to do it well, because like, see all of this fundamentally it's, it's that's because no that, that that is that is really cool because fundamentally like that's what tool creation is it's physicalizing insight i need to do this task it's difficult this will make it easier and you don't know that until you do it but you have to have that right. ink you have to have that inkling that that ability to model that it might be feasible in order to have any motivation to do it to begin with yeah the the biggest conflict comes with the idea that we, were, we when i see a pigeon have insight i can see it have the idea to try it this way but it's a pigeon it did do that yeah <laughs> so you can train someone to display everything that cognitive psychologists are using as fact like if this then must have happened mm -hmm. and it hasn't there's been nothing so far that a behavior analyst couldn't train a pigeon to reflect as well um so it's uh yeah are we conscious beings or are we simply having reactions to our environment um based on our current past experiences and i don't know where i sit I sit more, I think it's funner to train pigeons to do it too. So I am pro behavior side, but cognitive psychology is contemporary psychology today. So it is uh, obviously helpful to some people <laughs> and uh, it's a very well-respected science and they've had a lot of great like since cognitive psychology took over, we've learned more about the human brain and how we behave. Um, so, yeah. Well, and, and that's, mark. that's with me. I, um, I have a proclivity for being able to visualize. I can think visually when thinking linguistically doesn't get there for me if that makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I had an yeah. idea, um, a couple months ago about, um, the rough boundaries of identity, right? Because it's not limitless, but it doesn't have to be like chauvinistic and limited either. Right. Um, and, and the, the way I visualized it was, um, 
take like a neon sign, right? Like a letter, we'll say the letter O, right? And sit around a campfire and take that, that neon sign and step back from the fire and oscillate it, right? Your eyes are gonna make the, the bounded, the hard bounded edges of the physical light bulb, right? It's gonna make it really fuzzy and it's gonna have a lot of wiggle room to where it just about anywhere in that, that, um, that framework, it'll sit comfortably but it's still loosely bounded because you can tell what's what letter it is, right? And it, it's the same way with the cognitive structures. I, I like to visualize um, like literal structures or like the sacred geometry for how people are sitting sitting down figuring out what to eat for breakfast this morning. <laughs> you know, well, mm -hmm. it's it, you know we 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 take it as instinctual, but we have all of these these heuristics, these pre-made. Um, group affiliations, identities, even even genetic input that we're dealing with that we make our um, decisions based off of. And yeah, on that, I think I'm going to call it. Um, I don't know if you can hear, but my kids are, are starting to be rude and way too loud in the living room, so I'm going to have to go fuss at them. Is there anything else you wanted to no say worries. before we we call it i mean we're, we're we did good we're coming up on you know an easy hour and a half so twice what we did last time and i think Sweet. this this last 30 minutes especially got really juicy yeah i had fun um i think i we hit every point that we wanted to without being like uh <laughs> uh very like and now on to question two <laughs> um it had a nice flow even though there was some structure to it so uh, have you stopped recording yet? No, I haven't, but um, wherever it is you want me to, just let okay. me know. Well, uh, this w wasn't a great outro for me because I started talking shop. Um, <laughs> in that case, um, I think we covered everything relevant to social circles today um, and uh, hit a lot of other stuff as well.